Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, recording this on Tuesday, 15th December 2020. As London and some neighbouring counties move up to Tier 3 and Germany, Italy and the Netherlands impose tighter restrictions over the coming days of Christmas. Today on the line, we have our three regular contributors, Nisreen Alwan. Say hi, Nisreen. Hi, I'm Nisreen Alwan, Associate Professor in Public Health at the University of Southampton. Helen Salisbury. Hi, I'm Helen. I'm a GP in Oxford. And Matt Morgan. Hello, I'm Matt Morgan. I'm an intensive care consultant based in Cardiff. And today I'm also a geography teacher at the minute. With your, with your what age children at home with you, Matt? So I've got my daughter's uh, 11. She's in the first year in secondary school. And in Wales, secondary school pupils are now doing live lessons and work from home with primary school pupils actually uh, finishing on Wednesday, I think it is this week, Wednesday or Thursday this week. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us, especially when we know how busy you are. And I'm very pleased that today our expert guest is Dr. Mike Tildesley. Mike. Um, hi there. I'm Dr. Mike Tildesley. I'm an associate professor in infectious disease modelling at the University of Warwick. Um, well, Mike, if I can start with you, you've clearly been following this pandemic very closely and been commenting on it very um, eloquently on Newsnight and elsewhere. How would you characterise where we are in the UK at the moment? So I think we're at a at a bit of a challenging phase, actually, at the moment of the of the pandemic in the UK. We have a situation where we know that we have a vaccine that's starting to be rolled out, albeit in relatively small numbers at the moment. But we are seeing across the country cases are starting to rise again. Um, and this is a real concern that um, next week we know we're going to see relaxations over the Christmas period and we will expect probably that in January cases will start to rise again. So there is a concern that we're seeing across the board a tightening of restrictions in response to this rise in cases. But of course, vaccines are starting to be rolled out. So I suspect in early January, we will start to be seeing the effect of the Christmas um, mixing in terms of a, a rise in cases, possibly further restrictions ahead. Then um, fast forwarding through to February time, hopefully at this stage, we will start to be seeing um, certainly a number of the elderly population receiving the vaccine. And we may start initially to see that being reflected in a reduction in the number of deaths and the number of hospitalizations. It's going to take a while before this is filtered through to cases, of course, because we're going to be a very long time before we get this out to the younger members of society and get close to these levels of herd immunity that we really need to start removing restrictions. So that's probably where we are. The biggest unknown to me, I think, at the moment with the vaccine is uptake. Um, and I think that's the that's the big concern I have. And it's not... It's not what we would call the anti-vaxxers, actually. It's the vaccine reluctant. And I think that's there's a quite a large proportion of the population that for probably very fair reasons um, in their own minds are reluctant to take up the vaccine. And I think that's a real worry because we know we need 60 to 70 percent of the population to be vaccinated to get to herd immunity. And looking at the figures, you know, if we, we believe that maybe 20 to 25 percent of people are reluctant to have the vaccine, then that's a real concern going forward, that we may not get to the levels of immunity that we need to start removing these restrictions. Thanks, Mike. So just going back to Christmas, um, we're a week away. What, what is your feeling about what the government should do? Should it 
um, allow these restrict that these um, relaxation of restrictions, or do you think it should rethink? So my feeling about Christmas was always very much um, it really should have been. Um, you know, very much focused on preventing loneliness. We know that really with Christmas can be a very lonely time for a lot of people who might be by themselves. Um, and to me, that was the main reason behind, or that should have been the main reason behind these relaxations, that um, we do need to think, even as epidemiologists, we need to think about long-term damage um, due to things like well-being and mental health. And I think that's something that's maybe not discussed enough. So I think that's quite important. Um, the concern, of course, is with this, three bubbles mixing over the Christmas period, that that could cause a quite significant rise in cases in January, particularly if people don't abide by those rules. If these bubbles are kept exclusive and if we can prevent mixing outside them, um, then maybe some of those risks can be mitigated, particularly with strong restrictions before and after. But my worry is that we do start to see uh, larger levels of mixing next week. And then sadly, that may be reflected in an increase in cases and hospitalizations in the new year. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Helen, tell us your thoughts on, on the Christmas relaxation and the likely impact. I really, really don't understand why the government are relaxing the rules, apart from the fact they don't want to be unpopular. And it would be extremely unpopular to say to people at this late stage, I'm really sorry, you're going to have to change your plans. But I do think that would be the responsible thing to do because we have a stage where we've got children are still in school. They are still catching the virus from one another. And then in no time at all, they're going to be meeting with their grandparents. Um, and this is going to be multi-generational gatherings indoors. It is a super spreader event par excellence. And in other countries, um, leaders have bitten the bullet and done things that they know are initially not going to be popular. People want to meet up, people want to see their families, but it's going to lead to more illness and more death. And the responsible thing to do at this point was to say, do you know what, please just stay at home. Maybe go for a walk if you can together outside, but don't meet and eat together inside because there's going to be a whole load more deaths if we do. Thanks, Helen. Matt, what do you think? Well, Wales is in a pickle this week. I'm in a pickle. I look, looking at my screen, I look exhausted. I feel exhausted. And that's because, well, the Welsh Intensive Care Society this week has written a letter to the health minister pleading to change the Christmas rules. We're at 120% capacity in critical care across Wales. Two trusts have stopped elective procedures already. And it's the 15th of December. Um, you know, it, it, it's hard, and I, I see the issue with caused impacts on mental health, loneliness, of course, the issues of trust. And the Welsh Health Minister has repeatedly said it's so hard going back against the promise because we don't want to lose public trust. But you shouldn't keep, make a promise you can't keep, of course. Uh, and throughout the pandemic, the way that science, modelling, and medicine works is things change. And that's okay. That's how science works. We get more information, we adapt, we update. The thing that doesn't change is dogma. Um, and so I think right now, continuing with that multi-generation mixing will cause problems. And the impact those problems will have on mental health and well-being shouldn't be downplayed either. Thanks, Matt. Nizreen. 
Well, I, d I don't know. I don't know. I think about Christmas. I, w I, I, I wonder about, um, I think we just look, sometimes look at things in isolation. So in Christmas, even though people might be mixing more with other households, let's remember that people are then not, for a few days at least, not mixing in the workplace and they're not mixing in schools, they're not mixing in colleges and universities. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, and I don't know, maybe uh, Mike could help us with that, you know, in terms of the, these components of the, you know, the, the different interventions, you know, which we, we still, we still speculate a lot about which one contributes the most. And I think we have to admit that we still don't know um, exactly, but I, but, I, but there are other, there, there, there'll be less mixing in other areas during the Christmas break and we, um, and, and it's a balance, isn't it? Mike, what, what do you think about that? So, I mean, Nisri makes an absolutely excellent point there. And I think this is, the, there is, that is absolutely true that we know that students are not at universities and children are not in school. And many people actually are at home for that period across Christmas. So we know that the risk is going to be reduced in other areas. Um, I also take Matt's point, though. I think it's an extremely valid point to make. My key thing with this situation actually is if we are limiting all of those contacts in other places, it's about these bubbles being exclusive. Um, if we were able to keep those bubbles exclusive and in relatively small groups, then potentially the fact that we are a lot of workplaces are closed, schools and universities are closed, we could mitigate some of that risk. But my bigger concern actually is whether people will actually abide by those three households and not mixing outside those. Because if they don't, then you run the risk of actually um, all of these households becoming connected. Um, you know, I work a lot on um, networks. Um, so one of my sort of research areas and the whole idea is, you know, if you put everyone in bubbles, then effectively you're breaking the network across the population because three households might meet together, but they're not linking between those three households. But it doesn't take many of those to not abide by the rules for suddenly all of these three household bubbles to be connected to one another. And that's where the danger really lies. Obviously, I mean, we've already talked about intergenerational mixing, and that's a key concern within these household groups. Um, but if they're exclusive, it may be that some of that risk could be mitigated. I think there's a huge unknown, and that's behaviour. Trying to predict how people are going to behave over that period is the real challenge. And I think as an infectious disease modeler, it's the thing we struggle with most is trying to predict how people are going to behave. I don't think that people understand about the exclusiveness of those three um, households together. I know plenty of people who are planning to see his parents on one day and then travel to the other end of the country, see her parents on another day and have lots of, I mean, each meeting may be only three families, but the concept that you're only allowed to see three families, you get together and that's it for the whole five days. I don't think that's been conveyed and whether people don't want to hear it or whether it's not been said clearly enough, I'm not sure, but I think there's a huge misunderstanding amongst people I know who are perfectly, um, they're, they're not in any way impaired in their understanding of other things, but they haven't got this. Um, and I don't, I do think that, yes, I can completely get the point that, that if you, if it was just limited to those little groups, it may not be too bad, but it's not going to be limited. It really is as if we're being told the virus is taking a holiday and you can take a holiday from res restrictions too. And it, it makes no sense to me. And I'm, I'm really fear for my colleagues who are working on um, in the acute sector, because I think 
it's going to be really difficult after Christmas. Matt? I'm pretty fascinated by this concept of behavioural medicine almost. And, you know, we went through a revolution in economics with behavioural economics, and many of us have read Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, and, and the work by Danny Kaufman and Amos Tversky. Are, are there other models that we can use to help predict behaviour in and around these medical interventions, such as uh, how people may have behaved in other infectious disease epidemics? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I will say, Matt, this is not an area that I'm an expert in, in in behavioral science, but there are, you know, there's a whole, this is a whole research area that people do work on is trying to determine how people may respond to a particular intervention. And I mean, for instance, you know, there's, there's been in the last few days, obviously, there's been this change in policy from 14 day isolation to 10 day isolation. And of course, if we view that purely from an epidemiological sense, we would say, well, OK, there's an increased risk there because all of a sudden we know people can have can um, develop symptoms as late as 14 days after being infected. So why would you reduce it to 10? But one of the arguments from the behavioral science community is actually we know that a very small proportion of individuals are remain are staying in isolation for that 14 day period it's something like 11% which is something crazy if you reduce it to 10 the argument may be that actually this sort of fatigue that people might develop after about 7 days maybe because they know they've only got 3 days left you might actually get a higher proportion of people seeing through to the end of that 10 day period so I will say, I mean, I'm only sort of tangentially answering your question here, but I will say that actually this is one of the really key things we need to think about, not just what is the optimal policy provided everyone comply, but actually what's the likelihood of people complying. And sometimes a lesser, a sort of more, a less stringent policy, if you get higher levels of compliance, might be more effective. It, complying it needs to come with understanding. And I think people struggle to understand the logic behind many of these rules. Um, so, so, so um, you know, for example, people who are um, sending their children to school, say their children in secondary school, they have these hundreds of pupils bubbles mixing every single day. And then the message comes out and says, you're only restricted to three households over Christmas. And I say, well, but, but this is happening, you know, it's been happening for months. Um, so why, you know, this is such an important period for me. And I think unless we, we, somebody explains, it might be that we even can't explain, you know, the logic behind behind these rules and why we think this would be effective um, in a certain way. And I think if we don't, and if we, and if there's uncertainty about it, we also need to communicate that. And this hasn't been communicated um, to, to people. So people, you know, won't comply if they don't, understand and they don't believe you know you know what 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 are the indications of these rules i suppose um so so i think it's the, the behavioral science needs to the behavioral um justification need to go to explain more explanation of of the rules yeah no i i agree i think this is a, a, a absolutely great point i mean i've had this a lot with the, with the school situation where you know People are confused because, of course, um, you know, their children can mix in large bubbles during the day, but they can't go to the park to play football with their friends. And I always say, well, actually, we're not saying that football is somehow more risky than going to school, but actually the benefits of children being in school clearly outweigh the benefits of the, ch of the ch same children going to have a kick around in the park. But that has never been that clearly communicated. And I think sometimes there's this issue of parents may feel, well, OK, my children are exposed to all of these individuals in school, they're already, all these households are already connected. So there's nothing to stop, say, 
me having a child back for tea and having the parents in the house because they're already mixing on those levels. These need to be really clearly communicated that where risk is concerned, sometimes you accept a level of risk for the benefits that you get from it. And that's obviously the thing with children being at school. We know that there is undoubtedly some spread at school, but I would not back school closures at the moment simply because children being out of education for a long period of time is really damaging. And we need to actually make clear that if you accept that, if you want children to be in school, then what you need to do is you need to reduce risk as much as possible in other settings. But we accept certain things. You know, we want our hospitals to stay open. Of course we do. We know there's going to be transmission in hospitals, but we're not going to close the hospitals. But in order for them to stay open, we need to cut back in other ways. And I think that's something that we need to sort of get across to people that it's almost like there's this, there's this level of connectivity in the population that we can't go above. And if we go above that, all of a sudden, we're going to get spread across the country. We're going to get many more hospitalizations. We're going to get many more deaths. So we only have a certain amount that we can allow. Um, and once we get close to that, we've got to start cutting things. We've got to start cutting contacts in other areas. And I think this is something that really needs to be communicated to people that we still need to be cautious just because your child is going to school that doesn't mean it's safe to have the parents around your house for a coffee. You know, you need to cut back in that area to allow your children to go to school. Mike, can I ask, and one of the conversations we have on the journal is that there's been a lot of um, pressure to have the health data modelling made apparent and published so people can actually look at how these decisions are being made on the health side. But the economic side uh, seems to have, you know, no transparency at all. The decisions about, you know, weighing in the economic side of this, which is obviously crucial, the social impacts and all that, doesn't have that same level of transparency. You know, where are the economists publishing their modelling um, and the social scientists publishing their modelling? Have we got that right or are we just missing a whole wonderful transparency database that is up there somewhere? No, I think this is an absolutely great point. And I think it's something that I've been thinking about a little. You know, often as epidemiologists, we we tend to think about what's the optimal policy that minimizes, say, the direct health impact. Um, now, I've actually, it's one of my research areas, actually, um, in infectious diseases before the pandemic was actually to determine optimal policies dependent upon what your objective is. Now, for instance, just to give you a completely flippant example. So um, I worked before the pandemic on foot and mouth disease. Um, disease of livestock um, that we know we had a very big epidemic nearly 20 years ago now. If your objective with that with that disease is just to stop the epidemic as quickly as possible, then a, a completely flippant optimal policy would be, well, all we do is we cull all the livestock in the country, because if we cull all the livestock, we have no epidemic that can spread. Now, clearly, the government is never going to want to do that because we know there's a massive cost attached to that. So actually determining what the objective is, is really crucial. In reality, when it comes to a livestock disease, the government somehow want to minimise the overall cost of that outbreak, whether it be the cost of the livestock, the cost to the export industry, the cost to the agricultural sector and so forth. And actually determining what the objective is, is really, really important. So we've been thinking about this quite a lot for COVID, that Again, if all you care about really is direct public health impact of COVID, then of course the optimal policy is a very severe lockdown until we get herd immunity from a vaccine. In reality, it's much more nuanced than that. That what you want to do is you need to think about 
economic harm, long-term non-COVID health impacts, of course, of both of lockdown, but also because of COVID. And then we've we've alluded to, of course, long-term damage owing to mental health and so forth, which is really, really hard to quantify. So I will say these things are things that we are considering, but a lot of the economic decisions certainly are not being made by SPIM, the modeling group that I'm involved with. It's a subgroup of SAGE. But um, I do think there needs to be much more transparency in those areas, actually, to provide some kind of sort of confidence from the general public regarding how these decisions are made. There's a really interesting question about learning what what really helps the economy and what really spreads the virus and and, and kind of balancing those things together. Um, And one of the interesting things I read recently was about Super Saturday in the summer, where rather than as they were, the government were advised to... Um, take things gently, do things one at a time so that we could work out and and one could look at what happened to the numbers of infections. One could find out a bit more about in the real world, where does this virus spread? But actually there was a a wish to to be let go all at once and um, have this super Saturday where suddenly you're allowed to do everything, which meant that there was quite a rise in numbers, but we didn't know where it was coming from. Uh, And I think there is a a sense that um, doing the sensible thing that helps us to learn is not always what politicians want to do. Matt, I'm really struck by your comment about how exhausted you and no doubt your colleagues are. Um, Tell us a bit more about how life is in, in Wales and on intensive care. It's been a week of two halves, really, in the last seven days. I had my vaccination, the Pfizer vaccine, last Tuesday, and that was a fab moment. You know, since then, we've had a letter from the Welsh Intensive Care Society saying how difficult things are in Wales. Hospital admissions in Wales and hospital patients is far in excess of what they were in March and April. Uh, I've got meetings today about planning a new pandemic surge rotor over the festive period and it looks like this Christmas we're all going to be working a lot more again Uh, and that's on the back of March, April and May and actually that's on the back of a survey recently done by College of Intensive Care showing that over a quarter of people who've worked excessive amounts and when I say excessive amounts I don't mean a shift here and there, I mean sometimes hundreds of extra hours, clinically facing hours with patients haven't been remunerated in any way for that, whether it's time, uh, payment or anything else. And it's not about money. We don't want money. We don't do anything with it in many ways at the minute. It's about that process and that recognition. Uh, Matt, last time we spoke last week, you mentioned that um, in your experience that rates of mortality were going up on intensive care. Um, and there was a sort of people who who listened may have been a bit confused about exactly what was meant by that, that they'd heard that mortality rates overall were going down. Can you just um, explain again what's going on from your point of view? Yeah, sorry for the lack of clarity about that. It is a complex issue. And the comments I made about worsening mortality were meant to relate only to invasively ventilated patients with COVID on ICU not all comers with COVID on ICU, and it is complex. Effectively, you're right that in many ways, the mortality between wave one and wave two overall 
in ICU is better. Um, it's come down significantly by about 10%. However, in wave one, we were invasively ventilating a lot more patients early and then using rescue therapies like steroids late. But in wave two, we're using a lot more non-invasive ventilation and treatments like steroids from recovery study early. And that's improved that overall mortality. However, for the ventilated patients in ICU, so not the ones on CPAP or high flow oxygen or other things, for those ventilated patients, the data at the minute from ICNARC actually shows a worse survival of uh, 33% in wave two versus 53% in wave one. There's caveats to that, and that data is incomplete because there are still around 20% of these patients still receiving care in ICU. So that figure isn't an end figure, but to be the same or better of the invasively ventilated patients in wave two, that would require nearly 80% of those still receiving critical care to survive, and that feels unlikely. Uh, and the reasons for this are a lot. You know, it, it's predominantly going to be that we are now invasively ventilating patients who have failed the evidence-based therapies that we now have. So we are subselecting a new group of patients. But that does change things in ICU quite a lot. You know, and, and having a large number of patients die in ICU in itself is tough for staff. Uh, and we are quite used, sadly, to death in many ways in ICU. One in five patients who come to us overall with any condition will die. But that on top of wave two in a stretch system, uh, people working huge amount of hours over the festive period, for example, with these mortality rates is, is going to be a, a big burden to carry. And uh, that is something I'm, I'm worried about. Matt, I'm interested. I've seen a few reports, and I just don't know how true they are, about people um, not surviving COVID when they could have survived COVID because of lack of intensive care capacity. Um, I would be interested to know whether that's your experience or actually have we stretched and flexed um, to provide everything that was needed? Certainly in wave one and where we are now, the decision-making with regards to admission to critical care is purely based around that patient's best interest decision. You know, there's been no capacity reached to such an extent that people are not admitted to critical care purely because of capacity. It's always because of a best interest decision, which is the fundamental of decision-making in critical care medicine from now and, and forever in, in many ways. So that's certainly been the case in wave one. Where we are now, capacity is really hard. Again, we are admitting patients according to their best interests. There hasn't been a case I'm aware of where capacity has been reached and that isn't possible. We flex in other areas of the hospital. What people have commented on is, is this reduction in survival in wave two because of things such as capacity issues and staffing ratios and everything else. And, you know, you just can't say that. I think it's predominantly the subgroup of patients that we are now caring for who have failed first-line therapies, uh, who we're intubating as a last rescue attempt. And unsurprisingly, in many ways, they failed the treatments that we know work. 
and we haven't got any magic treatments in ICU. Uh, all we've got is time and good nursing care. And even that isn't enough uh, for everybody, sadly. I, I do wish more people could hear you talk, Matt, because I think um, that really stark reality of the people who, with all the care and everything we have to offer, you're still losing because this is a horrible illness and there are so many people who are underplaying how serious this is um, and you know one doesn't want to be spreading doom and gloom all the time but I think people are need to be appropriately fearful actually or appropriately careful um, and need to hear what you are saying um, so that they alter their behaviour accordingly, um, particularly over Christmas. For patients or families listening whose loved ones are in critical care, you know, the reason that we provide that is because we hope there is a chance of people surviving. We don't do things unless there's no chance. We only do things if we think there is hope and there is a chance. Um, but you're right, you know, the, the chances of getting through that are tough and even for those who do get through, this is a long old road. You know, if, if Michael Rosen, the famous children author, was in intensive care for a very long time, he's recently done an interview on Radio 4, which is very well worth a listen, describing some of his recovery and some of his experiences. And just seeing those death numbers on the government totals uh, blinds you to the challenges for survivors. Uh, and that's not just those with long COVID, uh, as Nisreen has talked about before. That's also those coming through critical illness. And the road to recovery is very long and uh, often incomplete. So, you know, not, not remembering those survivors almost and focusing on death alone uh, doesn't do it justice. Moving on to a possibly hopeful uh, future uh, with the vaccine coming through, uh, the Pfizer vaccine now beginning to reach people in the UK and in the States and elsewhere, um, and hopes for the Oxford vaccine to be approved by the regulators. How are you viewing what the future holds? Helen? Ah, well, for me, quite personally, the, the future holds a very, very busy week for the rest of this week, because if the vaccine arrives when it's meant to, which will be, we hope, Friday morning. Um, we, will, we will certainly be vaccinating all Saturday and we hope Friday afternoon as well. Um, it has been a bit of a roller coaster because the rules have changed every five minutes about what we can do. Um, so it's been quite a, um, a struggle to get organised and to think how we can vaccinate 975 people in the space of three and a half days and observe them for 15 minutes after each vaccination. So originally we had a plan for our vaccination, which would be like our flu vac campaign this year, when we had a pretty much a walkthrough service. People came in the front door and were booked in walked up to a station, were given, a, had a very brief conversation, were given a jab and walked out of the back door. Um, and one of my 
patients uh, tweeted she was delighted she was in the building for one minute and 12 seconds and that felt really safe. Um, this time we've got to let everybody sit down for a quarter of an hour. And there's, I think there's a really interesting thing about does the risk of anaphylaxis, is that greater than the risk of being in a space, albeit socially distanced, two metres apart, but you're going to be in there for more than 15 minutes. Um, so, and, and will it seem less safe to some of our patients and therefore put them off? So we shall find out. But I am hopeful. I'm, I mean, everybody is so excited and enthusiastic. Everybody is volunteering to do the shifts and to come and be involved because they really want to be delivering the vaccine. And one specific question, Helen, about um, those potential volunteers is I have friends and relatives who are retired general practitioners who are just longing to be, well, they say they're really keen to come and help with the vaccination programme, but haven't been able to sign up despite being encouraged in some places to do so. Are you finding that in Oxford? I think that we probably will have um, more volunteers that we can use to actually deliver the vaccine. Um, and there's all sorts of training one has to do. We have a few volunteers who we've actually given a slightly trickier role to, which is to answer patient queries, because I think there will be a majority of patients who say, yup, just give me the vaccine. And there'll be some who say, no, nah, I definitely don't want it. But there'll be some who say, actually, um, I've got a few more questions. Can I just discuss in a bit more detail? And as there's so many people we need to, to cover in such a short time, we've enrolled some doctors to be the, the question answers and the having a long conversation about it answers, because people need to be confident about what they're coming to. I, just going back to the question of vaccine, vaccine hesitancy that um, Michael talked about earlier, um, which I think in the particular first group that we're vaccinating, who for logistical reasons, aren't the care home residents, but are the over 80s living in the community who can come to the surgery. Um, this is a group who actually are remarkably pro-vaccine compared to some of their younger compatriots, because this is a group who knew kids who disappeared from school with polio and didn't come back. This is a group who really experienced horrible diseases, childhood diseases, which killed their, their, um, their schoolmates, uh, they really know why vaccines are important. And I've had very little hesitancy. I have uncovered a few um, long distant episodes of anaphylaxis. So people are worried, should I take this virus or shouldn't I? Because I was stung by a wasp 30 years ago when I had a horrible reaction, that sort of thing, which takes a bit of teasing out. But Mostly people are really, really keen to come and get this vaccine, particularly in this age group. Thanks, Helen. Nezreen, tell us your views on the vaccine. I think I wanted to, um, to say an important point that I think is not clear in uh, many people's mind, which is the distinction uh, between the vaccine being effective at preventing illness um, and it being effective at preventing transmission of the virus. And um, and, and, and the evidence we have of effectiveness is, is around um, preventing illness from um, the virus, but um, whether it prevents transmission is, is, is unknown yet, it's unproven. And I think hopefully we will be um, looking for some evidence in the future on that. But for the time being, I think it's really important to say that people who are vaccinated need to take 
you know, the same precautions that everybody else um, in terms of masks, you know, social distancing, um, you know, hand hygiene, everything really needs to be exactly the same uh, because we still don't know whether um, they um, can transmit the virus to others. And that would be particularly unfortunate. And, and particularly, I think, for in the case of healthcare workers where, you know, obviously they're dealing with vulnerable population, potentially unvaccinated, um, you know, lots of them. And um, so they really need to have that in mind that, that this, this is a possibility for now until we know more. Thanks, Nizreen. And since we last spoke, Matt, you have had the vaccine. How did it go? I have. Yeah, I had it last Tuesday and it was it was fine. You know, it was just like any other vaccine. It hardly felt it. I felt fine afterwards, had maybe a slightly achy arm for a, a few hours, but nothing to write home about. And the centre it was delivered in was a vaccine centre, which was pretty organised, actually. Um, I think different places are targeting different groups within healthcare workers and within hospitals differently. I wonder whether the vaccine should be targeted in a risk-specified way. You know, we all have gone through risk um, stratification as healthcare workers, and perhaps it would be good to offer this vaccination to those at intrinsic higher risks to start with. I think at the minute uh, where I'm working, it's been offered by group of department rather than by individual risk stratification but yeah it was uh, it was absolutely fine. Helen some of our listeners have asked about the anaphylaxis and um, how that might be reported in post-marketing surveillance is is there a system a yellow card system that you've got in place to do that? I mean there's the general yellow card system but I think there will probably be much more there'll be enhanced systems for this particular vaccine and clearly we'll need to keep a very close eye on any reactions that happen. Anaphylaxis tends to be, um, well, it, it is by, by definition an immediate reaction. So uh, it'll be different from any other um, adverse effects that might come later. And I think we'll need to keep an eye on, on those as well to what's reported to us, but I'm sure we will be feeding in and um, the, the whole vaccine programme, we're really, really keen to, to hear about all the episodes of anaphylaxis that, that happen. And I hope there'll be very few. We know that there were two in health workers, both of whom had severe allergic reactions were known to were carried EpiPens. And as we're now excluding people in that category from who's getting the vaccine now, I hope there'll be um, very few of those reactions. So we are heading into Christmas and the end of the year. I wonder if I could ask you each to very briefly give us your thoughts on what has gone well and what has gone less well. Mike. So um, I think it's been a challenging year. Now, I will say, um, you know, I do think it's an extremely difficult time to be running a country. So I think we have to accept that. that I don't think I think it's a poison chalice. I think whatever decision a government makes, there's going to be criticism. So, you know, I think it's very easy for us to sit and criticise without you know, bearing that in mind. That said, I think the key challenge and the thing that I always worry about when it comes to disease control is at the point that you decide you need to put a control measure in place, you need to put it in place now. The longer you wait, the more damage that's going to have. And we saw this with lockdown one back in March that the government didn't react soon enough. Sadly, there were a number of us, myself included, that were pushing for a circuit breaker back in September and early October. And again, there was a late response to that. And I think that's the thing that I hope 
going forward, particularly in January, if we see cases starting to rise again, that the government learns from, that if there is seen to be a need for a control policy to put in place, they react rapidly. Because actually, if they react rapidly, probably any such policy doesn't need to be in place for as long a period of time, because you catch it at an earlier stage in a rise in cases and hopefully mitigate any big risk going forward. Uh, let me talk about I should start positively, but I want to talk about what has not gone well first. <laughs> um, I think what happened throughout this this year is that, you know, in the UK, interventions have been constantly late and we <laughs> didn't learn, uh, you know, from seeing, uh, watching what happens in other places and in other countries. Um, and, and, and that learning could have very could have could have prevented the being late with things and that could have saved lives and uh, you know there are some obvious things and not only scientists could see i think even you know lots of members of the general public could see they could see uh, what happened what happens to other countries and we weren't the first to go in this pandemic and we didn't learn the other t the t's are also uh, related so trust and transparency and I think, you know, as the pandemic's uh, progressed throughout the year, uh, there were le lower levels of trust and that relates to not enough transparency about um, about why we're doing things and, and about the what we do know for sure and we, what we don't know for sure about the uncertainty. What, 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 there too, much, <laughs> too much not gone well and I've gone on about it. <laughs> Tell us what's gone well. There was um, lots of engagement uh, of science uh, and I think that, um, was a, a remarkable, really, you know, how scientists, how health, you know, health professionals have stepped up, um, not only doing the job, the everyday job that they do every day, but actually trying to communicate, you know, what's happening, trying to uh, counteract what, you know, the negatives that I just um, described. That's been remarkable to see under the pressures they're under um, and continuing to do that. Thanks, Nizreen. Helen, you're, you're well and not so well. I think I'm going to try and concentrate on what's gone well, because if I concentrate on all the mistakes that have been made, this will be a very long podcast. Um, it has been very disappointing for all the reasons that Nizreen talked about, the, the kind of British exceptionalism, which, which came from the it's oh it's it's in china it's nothing to do with us it's in iran it's nothing to do with us and it's italy we, we'll be fine oh my god now it's here absolutely what is we said that our, our inability to learn from elsewhere or even from our own past mistakes um it has been so depressing and not just depressing i mean you know it's been deadly uh so those are some of the things that have gone badly I think another thing that's gone badly has been the uh, way that money has been spent by our government. Uh, very, very little of the response was handed to local government, which would have been able to spend it well. So I said I wouldn't start on the negatives. I'm going to stop now or else I could go on forever. Positives. Let's look at the positives. Um, I am completely blown away by the science and the, the rapidity of the science. And if given the resources, uh, the money and the uh, the speed of regulation, which happened because there was um, impetus, because this was the priority, they've created a vaccine in such little time. Okay, they had already started on these models that they were adapting vaccines, but we've got one that has been, in fact, we've got several 
that have been developed and tested and work in such a short time. And I suppose it's the hope that that gives me that there are other really major problems facing this planet that if we had the will, we could also solve. So that, that gives me some optimism for the other major problems facing us, such as climate change, for example. Um, you know, if we have the will, it's amazing what we can do. And on a personal level, it's been quite fun watching our primary care network come together and really start working together to, um, to work out the delivery of this vaccine. How are we going to do this? And, you know, every obstacle, it's okay. Deep breath. Okay, we can still do this. And actually watching that optimism and that power of people getting together and working together has been quite inspiring. Thanks, Helen. Matt, how about you? Yeah, I echo those things that both have said about things that have could have gone better. I'd probably add communications in there, uh, seeing people on the lectern say, next slide, please, for weeks at an end. Uh, I, I don't want to repeat. And I think communication of science to the public is so critical that that could have been improved a, a huge amount. In terms of things that have gone well, it's remarkable. It was 38 weeks to the day from admitting the first critically ill patient with COVID to intensive care where I work to having the vaccine. You know, that's less than the term of a full-term pregnancy. And in that time, only one in 10 interventions we do in ICU are very highly evidence-based. And yet with COVID, it's now probably the most evidence-based treatments we have for any disease in critical care. And that's through international cooperation, not only recovery and remap cap, this week, there's been a paper published in Nature by Ken Bailey and colleagues at the genomics of COVID, which will lead to additional drug targets. And again, like Helen, that's remarkable in itself, but it's even more remarkable to show what can be done if we have focus, if we have funding, and if we have the people skilled, able to do so. Uh, so that's been the highlight for me. Thanks so much, all of you. Uh, a last question from me. How will you be spending Christmas, Nizreen? I just, I just want to rest, Fee, to be honest. I'm exhausted. I, I just want to spend it on the couch watching movies with my children. <laughs> Sounds good. Helen? Um, I still have some things to work out. My daughter is in South Wales as a junior doctor. Does she come home for Christmas? How do we work it if she does? And I, um, like so many people, working out... Um, what do we do? Uh, and I think we probably will see her. But then if we meet my parents, it's going to have to be outdoors or with the French doors open. Um, it's actually that that balancing of risks and wanting to do the right thing for everyone. It's, it, it's going to be quite hard, I think. Mike, what are you going to be doing for Christmas? Well, I suspect, I mean, our Christmas is going to be somewhat scaled down this year. Normally, we have various different family groups we would have, say, um my my partner's family here on christmas eve and then we'd have close friends on christmas day and then i would travel up to york where my parents live after christmas and of course so that would normally involve mixing of about five or six households and that's clearly not going to happen this year i have a number of different family members who are going to spend it by themselves so we're going to have a very very scaled down christmas with my children and um and keep it as small and as safe as possible and matt 
Well, I'll find out at 2.30 this afternoon how I'm spending Christmas because that's when we'll be talking about a second staffing uh, surge wave for COVID. So uh, I'm meant to be off this Christmas, uh, but we shall find out uh, this afternoon. Thanks, Matt. Well, I just hope you and Nadrine and Helen um, and Mike will get some rest. Uh, This is our last COVID podcast for 2020. We'll be back in January. As always, we want to cover the issues that matter to you, our listeners. So do let us know via social media if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or a specific question we could answer. And do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Fee Godley. Goodbye. Happy Christmas. And thanks for listening.